Well, this morning, our sermon comes from Luke chapter 12, beginning in verse 1. Luke chapter 12 and verse 1, you'll find that on page 871 in the Pew Bible. If you don't have a copy of God's Word, we do invite you to take that Pew Bible home to be your own. And I do, as I like to do, invite you to make sure you have a copy of Scripture open this morning. We're going to go through 12 verses. I'll be going verse by verse this morning, as is usually our custom here. And you will find it helpful, I think, to stay engaged in God's Word by having God's Word open in your lap. And so Luke chapter 12, beginning in verse 1. Hear now the Word of God. In the meantime... When so many thousands of people had gathered together that they were trampling one another, he began to say to his disciples first, Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Nothing is covered up that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. Therefore, whatever you have said in the dark shall be heard in the light. What you have whispered in private rooms shall be proclaimed on the housetops. I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who can kill the body and after that have nothing more they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who, after he has killed, has the authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Or not... Five sparrows sold for two pennies, and not one of them is forgotten before God? Why, even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, you are of more value than many sparrows. And I tell you, everyone who acknowledges me before men, the Son of Man will acknowledge before the angels of God. But the one who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. And everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. But the one who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. And when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, do not be anxious about how you should offend yourself or what you should say. For the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. Our Father in heaven, we are thankful for the words of Christ. Help us, remind us this morning that we have the distinct and amazing privilege to consider the very words of Jesus Himself. And even as our brother exhorted us this morning, may this not just be another time we sit and listen to a message, just one more sermon to listen to, but may we come with eagerness, may we listen diligently, may we work hard at listening today, that we might hear the words of our Savior, and they might change us, we pray, in Christ's name, amen. When Martin Luther was on trial at the Diet at Worms, being accused by John Eck, the Archbishop of Trier, he asked him, Martin Luther, do you recant of your heresies in your writings? Do you defend them all, or do you care to reject? Luther, the great bombastic theologian, wavered. And to the surprise of everyone, he murmured his quiet response, saying, This touches God and His Word. This affects the salvation of souls. Of Christ, of this Christ said, He who denies me before men, him I will deny before the Father. To say too little or too much would be dangerous. I beg you, give me time to think it over faltered, surprised everyone. Luther said, I need time to think about whether I should recant of everything I have stood for up to this point. And so they gave him a night, locked him away in a little cell, and there Luther 
struggled with this great trial as many of his colleagues passionately called out to God to strengthen him. When the sun arose, a larger hall was chosen for the previous hall cannot now hold the masses of dignitaries and royalty who have come perhaps to hear the great reformer bow his knee to the authority of the Roman church. And so they they gathered. No one could sit. There were so many people except the Holy Roman Emperor himself who took his throne before Luther. And John Eck took that moment to, to speak long and eloquently before the masses in the flickering candlelight, concluding, saying, I ask you, Martin, answer candidly without horns. Do you or do you not repudiate your books and the errors which they contain? Luther responded, a response which has now gone down in history. Since then, your majesty and your lordships desire a simple reply. I will answer without horns and without teeth. Unless I am convicted by scripture and plain reason, for I do not accept the authority of popes and councils, my conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and I will not recant anything God help me. Amen. Luther, who wavered, overcame his fear of men. And he stood firm, even though his very life was on the line. Well, Jesus Christ, of course, had his enemies too, didn't he? Many people seeking to get Jesus to recant, to to change his opinions, to soften his approach. Remember, Last week, we considered in our study of Luke's gospel, Jesus at the dinner party there with the Pharisees, and, and, and he was pronounced these six woes and calling them all sorts of names out of love in his heart to, in order to get them to repent, being very forceful with them. And, and one man stood up and said, stop saying these things. Do what we say you should do. Wash your hands like we wash our hands. Perform our rituals. Be like us. Christ would not bow his knee to the opinions of men. And you remember how it ended, right? Chapter 11, verse 53. As he went away from there, the scribes and the Pharisees began to press him hard and to provoke him to speak about many things, lying in wait for him to catch him in something he might say, right? He leaves food untouched leaving a room of religious leaders not simply upset, but enraged. Now note the contrast between that and verse 1 of chapter 12. In the meantime, when so many thousands of people gathered together, they were trampling one another. He, He leaves the elite and he's out amongst the masses. And there are thousands of people tens of thousands perhaps gathering, trampling one another to get close to him. We have no record of any ancient man ever accumulating crowds like this to come and to listen to him teach. Jesus stands alone as these massive crowds gather. And and when they do, Jesus turns to his disciples and he speaks to them about fear. Five times Christ mentions the word fear in this passage how not to live in the fear of people. Now, why speak about the fear of people, the fear of men when the crowds are growing, when your popularity is reaching its peak? I think the reason is, is that there is a temptation to live out of the fear of what other people think about you. Especially when you become popular, the crowds are gathering. You don't want to mess it up, right? And you begin to think, okay, what do they want to hear? What should we say? What would please them? And you have that temptation. I think you understand that, don't you? You understand the temptation to win the approval of other people, right? We live out of fear of people so often. People get stressed out about what people think of them. People have high blood pressure. People can't sleep because of an encounter they had with somebody or encounter they might have with someone. People avoid other people because of the fear of men, right? This this is so powerful in our life. Teenagers, we call it peer pressure. With adults, we call it people-pleasing. Maybe sometimes called codependency. Perhaps best called worship or idolatry. 
Right? Because when we live out of this way, we want people to be pleased with us. We want them to bless us. We want them to think highly of us. We want them to say to us, well done, good and faithful servant. And so what happens is we begin to do what pleases them. And Jesus says, the fear of man is so dangerous. In fact, Proverbs 29, verse 25 says, the fear of man is a snare. It doesn't work. You just end up enslaved. And Jesus comes to his disciples here in this passage, and I hope and trust he comes to us today through his word to help root this fear of man out of our hearts, to help us to be bold and confident. He does so by giving us uh, amazing truth statements after truth statements. And I would believe, I would suggest to you, the degree to which you believe what Jesus has said today, the degree in which you pound it into your heart, is the degree in which you will be set free, free to be fearless free to be selfless, free to be humble, free to be authentic, free to be selfless in your pursuit of God's kingdom. So five truths this morning about how God can help you overcome the fear of man. Number one, and we'll spend the bulk of our time on this point, don't fear man because God reveals hypocrisy. Verse 1 says, In the meantime, when so many thousands of people had gathered together that they were trampling one another, he began to say to his disciples first, Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. I read an account of a man in in 2004, a common man who was uh, gaining great acclaim, being labeled a hero by the local media due to his great sacrifice. His name is Rob Smitty. Everyone was thinking highly of Rob, for he had decided to give his kidney away to a complete stranger. Someone he never met before. He was willing to undergo that surgery, give that organ to another person so that that person might live. And everybody was praising him for this great act of of compassion and sacrifice. He simply said, I'm doing so because I want my children to be proud of me. And yet when they actually asked one of his children what they thought of their dad, his 10-year-old daughter in this case, She did not share the public's approval of her father. In fact, she hadn't seen her father in some time. He hadn't called her on her birthday. Her daughter said, I I don't think my father's much of a hero, end quote. In fact, uh, because of Rob Smitty's recognition and attention he was getting for this act, it actually helped the authorities discover he hadn't paid his child support in over a year. And so shortly after he healed from his surgery, he was put in prison for back child support. Can you you imagine giving a kidney to a complete stranger and yet not willing to provide, put food on the table for your your daughter? Sounds absurd, doesn't it? And I think if we're probably honest, it's not that hard to imagine. We, We like to position ourselves as something we are not. We, we like the praise of other people, even when it is unearned. We like to be popular. And the crowds are growing. The disciples see their popularity rising. And Jesus recognizes the temptation at this point to hypocrisy like the Pharisees. Be on your guard against the leaven of the Pharisees, he says, which is hypocrisy. Hypocrisy is like leaven. It's like yeast. Right? The yeast makes the bread rise. You just put a little, a little bit of yeast into the bread and it works silently throughout the whole loaf, causing the whole loaf to rise. Hypocrisy starts small. Right? Just one little word, exaggerating your accomplishments perhaps, and it begins to spread throughout your life. And Jesus says, beware of this hypocrisy. Now hypocrisy is simply a gap between who we appear to be and who we actually are. Right? We create We have a tendency to create a public persona because we want people to think we're better than we, than we truly are. Right? We like to win the praise of people. We, we seek their praise and approval. Right? We, what they think about us is so important to us. And the Bible calls that the fear of men, living out of the fear of the disapproval of men. I appreciate what J.C. Ryle uh, wrote a couple hundred years ago saying, the fear of man is one of the greatest obstacles which stand between the soul and heaven. What will they say of me? What will they think of me? What will they do to me? How often these little questions have turned the balance 
against the soul and kept the man bound hand and foot by sin and the devil. Thousands would never hesitate a moment to storm a breach or face a lion who dare not face the laughter of relatives, neighbors, and friends. Now, I wonder if you and I are susceptible to this, right? After all, we're good church-going people. We're all here this morning. Right? Can we catch this disease? Can we become like the Pharisees as well? Can there be hypocrites in the church? Well, I would suggest to you, as long as devotion to God is valued, some people will fake it. Right? They will fake it because other people value it. And, and I think if we're honest, it's easier to fake devotion to God than actually be devoted. Right? It's easier to appear holy than actually to be holy and righteous. And if you're here today, then you probably value Christianity. And therefore, you are open to this temptation to appear closer to Christ than you actually are. Right? To, to, and I, I wonder, and I certainly believe in, in many churches throughout this land, and I hope not here, but perhaps even here, there are some who appear to have a relationship with God, and it, it's just a mirage. It's an illusion. And I would, I would warn you, therefore, as Christ does, to listen very carefully. Look, look what he says, verse 1. Beware. Do you see that word? Beware of this. If you're concerned what other people think about you, you seek approval, beware. I would say, moms, beware. Post on Facebook, perhaps. And trying to position yourself as all put together when... Well, maybe you're not that put together. Dads, beware of the subtle exaggerations of your success at work. Beware of, of living one way at church and another way at home. Right? Hypocrisy at church covering a bad and terrible situation at home let me tell you this. Hypocrisy at church covering a terrible home life is almost a foolproof way to destroy Christianity in the rising generation. Is that not true? Right? If you want to destroy Christ in your children, then you pretend to be one here when you're not at home. How many, how many parents have helped their kids on to help? Because they play the Christian at church and there's no devotion to Christ at home, right? And the kids say, it's just, what's the point? It's a charade. It's a lie, right? Beware, Christ says. This is why the church is so incredibly important. So that you can, you, it's like the church, you come here to let yourself be known, to develop friendships and relationships and enter into discipling relationships. And you, you meet with people perhaps every other week and pray together and talk about your struggles or communities. Why we push community groups so, so much? So that you can become open and you could let down the persona and be authentic and true. It's so important for you to have relationships in which you are vulnerable to other Christians and humble and honest. Because the more you hide, the more hypocritical you will be. Right? You don't seek help. You, you just want to hide what's going on. And soon you're playing a role. Soon, before you know it, you have a public persona. And everybody thinks you're this when you're not that. And you need to protect that persona. And your soul begins to dry up. And you have trouble worshiping God. And things begin to shrivel spiritually in your life. But the more open you are, the more real relationships you have, the more sin is going to lose its power on you. I want to encourage you, Christian, take off the mask. Find relationships where you can have love and help and freedom. It's one of the reasons why we focus on church membership so much here. It's why we focus on a, entering into a covenantal relationship with one another in which we say we will carry each other's burdens. Not, not just physical burdens, spiritual burdens. Help one another, right? I mean, I don't know where we get this idea that Christians are supposed to be perfect. That we all have it put together, Right? I mean, just read the Bible. You find a lot of perfect people in here? I've read, I've read the whole book. I found one perfect. His name's Jesus. 
all the rest are messed. I mean, you're 400 words into the book and you have one brother murdering another brother. And it's like downhill from there. And so where do we get this idea that we're, everything's okay, right? We, we have no struggles. We have no challenges and difficulties. Listen, do we have a ways to go? Yes. The whole foundation of our faith is that we are messed up and therefore we need a blood sacrifice to cover our sins, right? So why, why would we pretend, right? This is what the church is for. This is why it's good to spend time developing relations after the service. It's why it's good to invite people out to lunch on Sunday afternoons or go to the dinner on the grounds next week or, or to find a Sunday school or a men's group or a woman's Bible study. Don't treat the church like a, a gas station where you're just coming to fill up once a week while you stare at your cell phone and then you're off, right? It's a family. It is to be a family and the degree into which you allow the church to be a family is the degree in which you shall find power over this pull in your life. Let the church be the church. Don't be a hypocrite. Don't appear holy when you're not. It's dangerous. And it's not only dangerous, it's foolish. It's stupid. It's not going to work. You see verse 2? Nothing is covered up that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. Therefore, whatever you have said in the dark shall be heard in the light, and what you have whispered in private rooms shall be proclaimed on the housetops. You see what Jesus says, your hypocrisy will not last. It does not work on that last day. Nothing will be hidden. The masks are coming off. Full disclosure is happening on that last day, Jesus says. Now, I've heard this verse and and verses like this taught many times, and I'm sure you have, and I don't know if you've heard anything like this. People say, well, on that last day, um, you're, you're going to stand before God, and there's going to be like this massive television, big screen television, and then you're on the TV, right? And, and we're, God's just going to go over every one of your sins. And by the way, all creation's watching. And so he'll just play the sin, and there you are fussing at your wife because she, she made wheat coffee or something. Right? right? And, uh, and, 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 you know, all creation is going to see that, and they're just going to shake their head in disbelief. It's like, oh, man, I can't believe you did that. And, and God's going to, he's going to hit the pause button, and he's going to say, really? Are you serious? I mean, my son gets slaughtered for you, and you're fussing at your wife. And then he pushes play, and then you go on to the next sin. And by the way, he also knows every thought you had, so he's covering all those, right? And you just go, and you're standing there for 50 years. I don't know, 200 years. Why all creation watches, watches your sin? Okay, I, I don't think that's what this verse is teaching. You see, what Jesus is, he's dealing with the issue of hypocrisy, and what he's explaining is that all of you who are wearing the mask, the mask is coming off. What you truly are will be revealed. It's it's, it's going to be shown. And and therefore, hypocrisy doesn't even work. It fails. Now, let me take a step back. Let's imagine that a little scenario I had actually took place. It won't, but let's just pretend it did. Let's pretend you're standing there in the big screen and God's going over every one of your sin and all creation's watching. Now, that's a troubling thought for us, right? But let me ask the question, why is it troubling? Is it troubling because you'd be embarrassed? Because all creation gets to see your hidden sin? If it is, that's hypocrisy. You should be far more concerned with what a holy God sees you doing than what another man or woman does. Does not work. I encourage you to follow Jesus with love and honesty. I encourage you to not care what other people think. Don't have an eye on what other people will think of me. Don't fear man, right? Because uh, God's going to reveal the secrets. He's going to reveal hypocrisy. But secondly, don't fear man because God determines eternity. Look in verse 4. I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body and after that have nothing more they can do. Now that is just an amazing statement. Right? I mean, I don't know anyone who talks like this. Don't worry about other people. All they can do is kill you. Right? I don't know about you, but that's kind of important to me. Right? Living is on my to-do list for today. 
Right? He says, don't, don't, don't worry. All, all they can do is, is kill you. And then they can do nothing more to you. Now, how is that good news? Well, it's good news if our values have changed. Right? When life, this life is no longer the thing I value as the most precious thing. But instead, what I value, I value Christ. I value Jesus. I'm like Paul who said, I've been crucified with Christ and I no longer live. Yet the life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me, right? If, if you value Christ, ultimately you can read verse 4 and there's some part of you that says, yeah, I get that. Don't fear man. It's all they can do is kill, kill me. And, and that's not the most important thing to me. Christ is far more important to me, right? And, and I think in verse 4, now we, we would acknowledge that with our heads, but if we truly believe that, how free will we become? Don't fear the man. Uh, they can't, can't do anything to you. I mean, the worst thing they can do is, is kill you and send you to God for all eternity. So don't fear them, but there is someone to fear. Verse 5, but I warn you whom to fear, fear him who after he has killed has the authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Right? God, God can throw you into hell. Jesus says. Hell's the the Greek word Gehenna. It's a location outside of Jerusalem in the Old Testament where the Jews sacrificed their children to pagan pagan gods. And when King Josiah began to rule and he brought about his reform, he he converted that that tra- that place into a trash heap and they would actually burn the the body of of criminals, dead criminals, um, and and it just became this ravine of smoking refuge and uh, a a cursed place. No one wanted to go near it. And the Bible will begin to use that as the imagery to describe hell. Now, I know most Americans don't believe in hell, um, but I, I would like to be clear here. Jesus obviously did. And so I'm just, my standard practice, as you know, is I'm going with Jesus, right? And so I don't care what everybody else thinks. Jesus said, I'm going to believe it. The man died and rose from the dead, and that's good enough for me. He explained that there is such a reality of hell, and I just can't imagine what it would be like to die and discover that, that God does exist when you thought he didn't, and Jesus is the only hope. Now notice Jesus is not threatening us. Look how he, he begins this section. Verse 4, you see that? I tell you, you see that next phrase? My friends... My friends, how oh, he longs for us to get this. Fear, fear God, he says. Now to fear God, we need to understand that in context, right? He's talking about fear of men. And the fear of men is not necessarily dread of men, though we conclude that. But it's the idea of wanting their approval. It's regarding their opinion as ultimate. So to fear God is to regard him as ultimate. And if we regard him as ultimate, we will flee from the fear of man no matter what they can do. Just like John uh, Hooper did when he was condemned to die during the English Reformation by the Roman Catholic Church. And his friends begged Hooper to recant of his belief in uh, salvation by faith alone. They urged him to say that the, the sacraments of the church were necessary for salvation. And his friends were saying, you could do this and you could escape the, the being burned to death. And, and Hooper said... Quote, life is sweet, right? I don't want to die. Death is bitter. I certainly don't want to be burned alive, in other words. But eternal life is more sweet. And eternal death is more bitter. Or Hugh Latimer, who had an occasion to preach before the violent King Henry VIII. And he was preaching there, and the king was seated right in front of him. And, and of course, the king had killed many people by this point. And, and Latimer um, was about to say something that he knew the king would dislike. And so he actually began to have an audible conversation with himself from the pulpit. And he said, Latimer, Latimer, be careful what you say. The king is here. And then he paused and said, Latimer, Latimer, be careful what you say. The king of kings is here. Right. Who are you going to fear? Are you going to fear man or are you going to fear God? Fear, fear God, Jesus says, not man. All man could do is, is, go, is kill you. Right? That's, now, by the way, man's generally not going to kill us in, in this 21st century America. We don't face that like many of the Christians around the world do now and certainly did when Jesus was teaching this. I mean, literally, the people he's telling this would be killed, most of them, by, uh, by man because of their faith in Christ. Now, we're not going to be killed 
So I think if Jesus were talking to 21st century Americans, he would say something like, my friends, do not fear those who can tease you and then do nothing more to you. Do not fear those who can hurt your career and then do nothing more to them. I say this to perhaps um, call to our attention. We are far too easily frightened, aren't we? Far too easily frightened by people to take a take a moral stand at work or challenge a Christian friend and perhaps caught in sin or talk to a stranger about the gospel. Don't fear man because God determines eternity. Third, don't fear man because God provides intimately. I love the transition where he goes from talking about hell to his care for a sparrow. Verse six: Are not five sparrows sold for? two pennies, and not one of them is forgotten before God. So sparrow, he begins with the value of the sparrows. Sparrows for a source of food were not very valuable, right? You just get a mouthful of meat from a sparrow. They were the diet of the poor. They were the dollar menu back then, right? In fact, you get five for two pennies, evidently. They're, they're, They're the least significant, right? Nothing seemed more insignificant. And yet Jesus says, God doesn't forget a single one. So consider, if you will, Lenny the sparrow. Lenny was hatched somewhere in a forest, and God knew where Lenny was hatched. And Lenny grew up in that nest, and God knew about Lenny, though no one ever saw Lenny. And God knew when Lenny was hungry and how he felt when he was hungry. And God knew what Lenny ate and how he felt when he ate. And he, he knew uh, every day of Lenny's life. He knew where Lenny flew and what tree branch he landed on and, and where he went from there. And every day of Lenny's life, God was aware. He knew where Lenny died and fell onto the forest floor. We were backpacking with my kids, as you know, last week in, in the Smoky Mountains in North Carolina. And we come across this little, little nest there up in a, a rhododendron. Uh, and, and there were just three little, three squawky little chicks. I don't know if one was named Lenny, but there they were, all right? And, uh, you know, no one's ever seen them except my family. I mean, we're probably the first people to ever see them. Maybe the only people ever to see them in the backcountry in the Rockies. But, you know, who else sees them? God does. He knows every single one of them. He knows everything about their lives. This is what Jesus is teaching us. And then look at the end of verse 7. Fear not. You are of more value than many sparrows. Right? If God knows about Lenny and every other sparrow in the world, what about you? I tell you, God loves you deeply. He cares for you intimately, every detail of your life. I like the story I came across of an inmate who watched the sparrows through his bars living in a prison for his whole life, mostly with sad and broken men. And these sparrows gave him hope. He said, Yet I am happy and free, though tombed within this hell, for the mighty acts of God I see through cold bars of my cell. For sparrows play outside my wall and flit from fence to tree. I know he grieves their every fall, and he is here with me. Martin Luther once again said the sparrows have become a theologian and a preacher to the wisest of men. God cares for them. How, will, how much more will He care for you? And by the way, He doesn't only provide and care for them. He does so intimately. Look in verse 7. Why? Even the hairs of your head are numbered, Jesus says. I have read that the average person has 100,000 hairs. Some of us are down a couple hundred, right? In case you're wondering, blondes on average have 145,000 hairs. Brunettes on average 120,000 hairs. Redheads on average 90,000 hairs. So I think we get the short end of the stick. It may be the brain just pushing out the hairs. I'm not sure what's going God, God, Jesus says he knows. Right? You don't know how many hairs you have. You, you, even if you wanted to know, you couldn't. God knows everyone. What does that mean? It means nothing is too insignificant in your life to not draw his attention. He is so close to you that he divides your hairs one from another. He knows how to care for you infinitely better than you know how to care for anything, including yourselves. 
That's what Christ is saying. So fear not. What do you have to fear if you have a good God who cares for you in this way? Now, it doesn't mean, by the way, that the hair doesn't fall out or the sparrow doesn't get eaten. The point is not that, the, that we won't face sorrow and hardship. The point is that we will not face it apart from God's providence, knowledge, care, love, and presence. He is close. He cares. Regard God. Number four, don't fear man because God forgives abundantly. God forgives abundantly. Note verse 8. And I tell you, even everyone who acknowledges me before men, the Son of Man will acknowledge before the angels of God. He connects what we say now with what, we will say, what he will say then. So he says the Christian is to confess Christ. He is to acknowledge Christ. He is to say, Jesus is my God. Jesus is my Savior. Jesus is my treasure. Right? True faith goes from the heart to the lips. And if we acknowledge Him in this way, He promises to publicly acknowledge us one day in heaven. Right? Now, why would we not acknowledge Christ? Why will we remain silent? It's only one thing I can think of, perhaps. It is fear of men. Right? That we are afraid of what they might think if they hear that we belong to Jesus, that we love Jesus. And Jesus goes on and says we should perhaps fear what would happen instead if we keep our mouths silent, if we do not tell people to whom we belong. For verse 9 says, But the one who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. If our mouth is silent, if I'm not willing to acknowledge him at school, in the office, or the family, if I stand before a trial like Martin Luther and I deny him, there is a great fear that he would deny us. And I'll tell you, uh, uh, many people will stand before God one day and they will say to Jesus, will you please speak on my behalf? And Jesus, according to Matthew 7.21, will say, I never knew you. Depart from me. That's the words of Christ. And so, should we not, therefore, not live out of a fear of man? Right? Listen, you... You can't be a Christian and ashamed of Jesus. This just don't go together. You know, you know what a Christian is? And th- Christian is many things. But what a Christian is, is a Christian is one who is not ashamed of Christ. Right? And if you're embarrassed to belong to Jesus, um, then that should rock, I think, your assurance of salvation. You need to confess Him. Con- right? School, break room, neighborhood, have they heard that you identify yourself with Christ? Do they know how grateful you are that He has saved you from your sins through His death and resurrection, right? Have you testified to Him? And I don't want, don't want it, well, they know I go to church, right? Well, big deal. Right? Let's be honest. Thousands of people go to church. Big deal. Do they know that Christ is your treasure? I follow Jesus, not myself. That's what He wants he wants you to confess Him, acknowledge Him. In fact, when you confess Him, it's how you're saved. Romans 10.9 says, If we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God raised Him from the dead, we will be saved. We'll be forgiven of all of our sin, which is what Jesus begins to speak about in verse 10. And everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. But the one who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be Forgiven. Now I know everybody gets all kind of bent out of shape in this verse. This idea of you could commit this sin, blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, and not be forgiven. And, and I would talk to you about that in a moment. But just before we race down to that, look what he says in, at the beginning of verse 10. Everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. Right? Even if you curse Christ, you can be forgiven. Is that not amazing? I mean, he calls himself the Son of Man. By the way, that's not a reference to his humanity. That's a reference to perhaps one of the most famous verses in the Old Testament. Daniel 7, verse 13 and 14. Where the Son of Man is pictured as this divine king who has authority over all of earth forever and authority over all the angels of heaven. It is a specific reference to this divine king. 
and he is calling himself the divine king of heaven and earth. And he's saying, by the way, you could speak against me and you can still be forgiven. Now think about the dignitaries and the kings in that day. Did you speak against kings? Did you curse rulers? Of course not. Right? Esther could not even come into the presence of her king husband without fear that he might kill her. You didn't curse a king. You approached a king with your head down and, and you had all sorts of terms of reverence and adoration. Thou most highest king, your most honorable, and you backed out of the room, right? You, you did everything you could to not um, dishonor a king. And Jesus says, by the way, I, I'm no simple earthly king. I am the king of all creation. I am the king of heaven and earth itself, and I shall rule forever. And if you speak against me, I will forgive you. You know what Jesus never says? How dare you talk to me this way? Never. Don't you know who I am? Not, not once. In fact, they'll take him up on Calvary's hill and they'll mock him and they'll beat him and they'll spit on him and they will nail him to a couple pieces of wood and he will say, Father, will you please forgive them? Even if you curse the Son of Man, you can be forgiven. So let's not run past that. His, he seems to have this infinite capacity to forgive. And despite, well, now we get to the end of verse 10, despite this un, unimaginable willingness to forgive, you evidently can put yourself beyond his forgiveness. The end of verse 10 says, but the one who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. So there is evidently a sin God will not forgive. Mark three twenty nine calls it the eternal sin that there will never be forgiveness. So what is, what is the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit? Well, note, he's, there's a contrast in there. The blasphemy against Jesus will be forgiven. The blasphemy against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. Right? You remember Paul. Paul blasphemed Christ. Paul even called himself a blasphemer. And yet he was forgiven. So why, why will the blasphemy against the Son be forgiven and the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit not be forgiven? Is the Holy Spirit more valuable than the Son? Right? Does God... God, you say, curse the Son all you want, but you better not curse the Holy Spirit because that will really tick me off. Right? No, I don't, I don't think so. I think it's probably helpful not to, think in, not to think in the terms of like, okay, you know, murder's bad, but blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, that is really, really bad. And God just says, listen, that's just too bad. I'm, I'm, you know, I'll forgive pr- pretty much anything, but that just goes too far, and I'm just not going to forgive it. That, don't think in levels of sin like the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is the, the highest level of sin. It's just too bad for God to forgive. I, I would suggest to you there is nothing you can do that is too bad for God to forgive. So why, why then will he not forgive those who blaspheme the Holy Spirit? Well, remember what the Holy Spirit's job is. What does the Holy Spirit do? Right? Well, he does a lot of things, of course, but John sixteen eight says the Holy Spirit comes into the world to convict the world of sin. The Holy Spirit, the role of the Holy Spirit is to open your eyes to your sin, to convict you of your sin, to grant you repentance. The Bible says repentance is a gift from God. It's the Holy Spirit's job to bring about repentance. And without, therefore, the Holy Spirit, listen, without the Holy Spirit working in your life, you will never repent. You will never get past all the self-denials, I didn't do it, or the blame shifting, I'm not responsible, or the justifications. You will never repent without the Holy Spirit's work in your life. And if you never repent, you will never be what? Forgiven. Right? God will forgive any sin if you repent. Humble, contrite repentance. Bow your knee to God. And if you do not, if you do not have humble, trusting, contrite repentance, how many sins will God forgive? None. Zero. Even the little ones? That's right. Won't forgive those either. So it's not that blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is so bad that God says, I'll never forgive you. You've done that. I I just can't imagine forgiving you. All sin that you repent of will be forgiven. But the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit will cut you off from the Holy Spirit's ministry to bring you to repentance and therefore forgiveness. It's not that you are not forgivable. It's you're not repentable. You can't repent without the Holy Spirit's work in your life. And so Jesus says, you can reject me, you can curse me, and you can still come back. The Holy Spirit can bring you back. But if you shut yourself off from the the very one who brings repentance in your heart, then you shut yourself off from forgiveness. God 
God will not forgive you because you have not repented. Now let me give you quickly, let me comfort you for a moment, and let me challenge you for a moment. Okay? Comfort. If you're worried that you have committed the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, you have not committed the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Because if you did, you'd be smug. You'd be satisfied. Right? You're not capable of that worry on your own. That's just a sign the Holy Spirit's still working in your life. So if any of you have anxiety in your heart that I might have committed the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, rejoice in your anxiety. Because it is proof that you have not committed that sin. Now let me challenge you. If you continue to reject the Holy Spirit's convicting witness in your life, He may withdraw forever. He may just stop convicting you. He comes and convicts us of sin. He comes and convicts us of our need to bow our knee to Christ in faith. And people just keep putting him off. I'll, I'll repent later. I'll trust Christ later. And we toy with him. We're playing with him. We're shoving him back. And I tell you, based upon the authority of Jesus' words, repent while you still can. I would, in fact, suggest to you that you are naive and simple if you think God's patience has no end, that you can always turn back no matter how deep and dark the sin gets. There is a point that your resistance so belittles the Holy Spirit, it blasphemes Him, and He withdraws from you. I like how John Piper imagined it, saying, They are like the buzzard who spots a carcass on a piece of ice floating in the river. He lands and begins to eat. He knows it's dangerous because the falls are just ahead, but he looks at his wings and says to himself, I can fly to safety in an instant. And he goes on eating. Just before the ice goes over the falls, he spreads his wings to fly, but his claws are frozen in the ice, and there is no escape, neither in this, this age or the age to come. The spirit of holiness has forsaken the arrogant sinner forever. My friend, if you're putting off Christ, don't toy with Him. The fact that you're even troubled this very moment is a sign that the Holy Spirit is graciously working in your heart. Will you not come to Jesus? Will you not turn from your sin and put Him on the throne in your life and be saved by faith? Will you not confess Him as your Lord and bow your knee to Him as your Savior and King? For He has died to pay all your sin and rose on the third day. Friends, you will not be saved by your good life, by your righteous acts, by your church attendance and all the rest. You can be saved only because there is a time in your life when you have called out for God's mercy. Be merciful to me. I am a sinner and I need the blood-bought mercy of Christ. Will you not do that now? Don't toy with him. May these words cause you to fear. Blaspheming the Holy Spirit. If you are putting him off. Number five, quickly, don't fear because God helps us personally. Verse 11. And when they bring you before the synagogue and the rulers and the authorities, do not be anxious about how you should defend yourself or what you should say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. Jesus says persecution is coming. You all are going to be arrested, my disciples. You're going to be forced to defend your faith. And when you do, do not fear that. Why? Because the Holy Spirit will teach you what to say. And by the way, you read the book of Acts and we see the Holy Spirit does exactly that. Every time, I mean, how many times are they dragged into court? And how many times do they fearlessly preach the gospel? And they didn't have 20 hours to prepare that message, right? They show up and the Holy Spirit begins to teach them what to say in the context of this persecution. Now, as I've kind of already alluded to, the persecution that we face is different, isn't it? Chances are we're not going to be hauled before rulers and, and courts, right? In fact, for us, persecution is not for believing in Jesus. Let's just be clear. Believing in Jesus in America, you will not be persecuted. But we do now live in a day when you believe what be- Jesus believed, you will be persecuted. That day's here. You believe what Jesus taught, you will be persecuted. You believe Jesus, what Jesus said about the authority of Scripture, you will be persecuted. All right, we, we, we could say all we want that certain, certain acts 
certain relationships are sinful. You say that? And that, that very, has a very real prospect of hurting your career, doesn't it? I mean, that's, that's today. And you could use the word sin, perhaps. You could describe murder as sin, child abuse as sin. You could do that. But you begin to say that certain relationships and orientations are sin. Right? And you will be persecuted. That's the day we live in. And so my friends, be encouraged. Right? Because you are not alone. And you say, well, I don't know what I'll say when that happens. The Holy Spirit will come and speak through you. Don't fear. Don't close your mouth. Don't run and hide. Don't, don't cower under standing for Christ with love for everyone, a faithful, humble trust in Jesus, and rejoice in the Spirit's help. Do not fear. In fact, you read this and you think, well, this is similar to what Christ did. Was he too not dragged? He was not swayed by public opinion, lived out of a fear of God, only to please God. Was he not dragged before rulers and authorities? But what's interesting is what he promises here did not happen for himself, right? The Holy Spirit will tell you what to say when you're dragged before courts and rulers. When Jesus was dragged before courts and rulers, he didn't say anything. He was silent. And he didn't say anything because if he did, he would be acquitted. He would be let go if he defended himself. And that was not the Father's will. The Father's will was for him to be convicted and to die. And that's what the Father willed. That's what Christ lived for. He died so that you and I will live forever. He rose from the dead so that you and I shall rise one day and reign with him eternally. And my great pleasure now to invite you to celebrate that work of Christ through this Lord's Supper. And we might remember the work that He has done. And that even in remembering this, even in taking of this meal together, it might strengthen us to overcome any fear we might have of others. Perhaps you can even pray now silently in your own heart as you prepare for this meal. Maybe God can root out hypocrisy in your life. Maybe He could convict you of sin that you might repent of it. Let us pray quietly as we prepare for this supper meal. Our Father, we are so thankful for Jesus. We are so thankful for His work for us that He would bear Your wrath for our sin. Will You not help these truths, Father? Help us to be free from living for the praise of others the protection of ourselves or careers or whatever it might be. And that we would live ultimately for you and your pleasure. Help us nurture our, our souls through this meal. That we might follow you well, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.